The following is a conversation with Peter Doherty. Peter is first and foremost a veterinary surgeon. A lot of his time is also spent researching immunity to influenzas at Melbourne's Peter Doherty Institute, for which he is the patron and the institution's namesake. The Doherty Institute is a joint venture between the University of Melbourne and Melbourne Health. It houses a group of infection and immunology experts who are leading the battle against infectious diseases in humans. In 1995, Peter was awarded the Albert Lasker Prize. The following year, he and his colleague Rolf Zinkenagel were awarded the Nobel Prize for discovering how the immune system recognises virus-infected cells. Peter was also the recipient of the Order of Australia and was named Australian of the Year in 1997. It was a huge honour to get to speak with him. Uh, we discussed the vaccine rollout, 20th century history and the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. If you like this conversation, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify or follow me on Instagram at Recorded Time Podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. is that um, I grew up in Brisbane, the outer suburb of Brisbane, which is now not so outer. Um, went to um, family in modest circumstances, dad a public servant, mother a piano teacher, grandparents lived close by, um, went to public um, state schools for primary school and high school, then on a scholarship to the University of Queensland to study veterinary science at the age of 17, when decision I made when I was 16, which is rather an odd decision for a city kid. But I went into it with the idea of doing research on disease of domestic animals. And I was bonded to work for the Queensland Department of Agriculture for five years after that, which was the length of the course. And that was the way they got vets and doctors and dentists to go to rural communities. Um, I did about four years of that, but most of it actually ended up being in the research la- in the diagnostic labs in Brisbane, and I did some research there, and then went to Edinburgh to um, do a PhD where I was also working. I've been working since I was 22 years old, and uh, never had um, sort of scholarships or fellowships to uh, to do full time research. I just did it while I was working, and as I was successful, I managed to get research jobs. I imagine 2020 was one of the busier years of your life. What kind of work have you been doing since the outbreak of the pandemic? Well, 2020 was unusual. Um, I turned 80 in 2020. Congratulations. And I did um, the veterinary research for about 10 years and then the rest of my career was basic biomedical research. And I was basically on the point of uh, stepping back and retiring We had a large uh, National Health and Medical Research Council grant on influenza, which cut out at the end of 2019. I had for some time not been running a research laboratory the way scientists do. It was a big program grant, 
So my input was partly uh, discussion and writing and helping to bring in money laterally for the younger people to do the science. And, um, and I'd written my first uh, non-science book. I've written six books on science and the scientific life for lay audiences. But this was my first book on a non-science subject and it was partly biographical because it was based around the story of my two uncles who were good tennis players and went off to World War II. One came back, one didn't. Uh, one was on the Burma Tairara, the other was at Kokoda and all those terrible battles in New Guinea and uh, Borneo. He came back and um, they were good, very good tennis players and made their own tennis court back in the 1920s. So the book was started out as war and tennis, as a sort of metaphor for war and peace, but it ended up as empire, war and tennis because I became very interested in that intersection between war and empire, which is what those 20th century wars were about, actually extending territory. And, uh, and then uh, tennis, of course, was uh, quite, a, quite, a, quite a good uh, occupation for the colonialists because at the end of a hot day in Burma or somewhere, you could uh, have 20 or 25 minutes of tennis and you only need one other person and then you could stop for gin and tonics and, uh, and get on with your day. And it's almost like a good fitting metaphor for war itself, I guess, the game of tennis. So. Well, it is and it isn't. I think it's more, uh, it, it is as a metaphor, the greatest metaphor for war in sport is American football, where they have different teams that run on and off the field and they're all kitted up in, uh, in very defensive gear. And a lot of the time they're just sitting doing nothing, but then they have periods of intense activity. So I think that's a very good metaphor for war. But I think tennis, uh, the best metaphor for tennis was the air war of 1914-1918 where you had individual or, or, or two people together up in a, a very flimsy plane uh, batting about the skies. So, uh, so that, um, that comes into the book. looks as though it actually will be published, which is, uh, but not this year and possibly next year. Are you quite interested in uh, the two great wars? I think uh, I was, as I was born in 1940, I was born in World War II, and I've long been interested in how that's defined uh, my life to an extent. I mean, the uncle that died would have been a very, I think, influential figure uh, because he was the hope of the family, the, my mother's family, and, and he, uh, he was the successful one. And so I think that might have moulded what I did. You know, I might have had a career in business. You know, so many of the things that happen to us uh, uh, happen by chance, uh, and chance that's outside our control. And um, I think that I've thought about that a lot and I've been fascinated by how the phenomenon of uh, Nazism uh, emerged and, and you have to trace it. You have to regard the First and the Second World Wars as simply a continuation with a pause in between. One big war. One big war, really, mm. because the causes were the same. And with, with the added uh, impetus in the Second War of Japan's imperial ambitions and, uh, and the tensions with the United States between Japan and the United States. So though we think of the 39-45 uh, war as started as a European war, it was also very much a Pacific war. I've recently been reading uh, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich and to what you were saying about just the, yes. the, the uh, luck and um, sort of minor events that uh, caused the great events of the 20th century. It's, it's just so fascinating to think that, uh, I mean, you really get the sense from reading about Hitler that World War II might not have happened uh, were, it not for, uh, were it not for him as an no. individual. 
uh, and just all the you know it's it's so interesting looking at the moments in his life where he almost died or he was you know you know maybe wasn't actually going to make it as chancellor in 1933 and you think that could have Yes, dodged hundred million lives. There is definitely an individual, you know, history. The history of humanity is, um, and our, our our success as a species, if we can call it that, because we're now getting into really serious trouble. But our history, the history of our success, is very much embedded early on in the fact that we worked together. We worked as a collective, tribal cultures, and so forth. And um, and even though there were hierarchies, they weren't built around. Um, bound single individuals often. Um, I like the story of what's well, not a, that pleasant a story, but of the Irish culture where uh, they would appoint a king and, uh, and if the king didn't deliver and make it rain, they would bury him in a peat bog. So, you know, I think the indiv- there's a great emphasis in some people's thinking on the, ind- the, the individual theory of history, which is true. I mean, uh, I think it's very likely that World War II would not have happened without uh, Hitler. It's quite possible it would not have happened if uh, President Wilson of America had been in good health and stronger at the Versailles Treaty because he tried to stop the French demand, supported by our Billy Hughes and the Belgians, uh, for severe reparations. And that was a catastrophe. And that uh, led to the, the degradation of Germany and the, and the economic situation that rose to World War Two. And they were very determined not to repeat it. And, uh, World War I, uh, at the end of World War One, there was a great determination not to repeat that, which is why you had the Marshall Plan in Europe, instigated by the Americans, and you had the Colombo Plan, for instance, in the Pacific. And so um, the same mistake was not made, fortunately, though we do tend to make the same mistakes over and over. But that's why, um, because of the charisma and the, the religious fervour that surrounded Hitler, that's why I found the Trump phenomenon so disturbing. Mm. I don't think for a moment Trump is Hitler. He's too lazy and uh, not well enough organised. But he certainly had aspirations to dictatorship. Mm. Well, I've, I had uh, Frederick Vervart, who's a professor in uh, classics uh, at uh, Melbourne University here on the first episode of the podcast, actually, and we were talking about how uh, Trump lacks the obviously the charisma of we were comparing him to Julius Caesar, but historically he seemed to be fitting that uh, role in the sense that I, I kept thinking, you know, if, if Trump gets assassinated, that's just kind of like the fuse in a similar way that the uh, uh, the Roman Republic when it fell into civil war did. Um, your, your deep history is better than mine. Um, well, are you training classics? Or? No, not at all, just a, just a bit a, of a nerd for it. A nerd, <laughs> yes, yes. I, I'm a bit of a, a tragic for history, quite yeah. frankly. And... Um, I'm passionate about it, and I, I, I think um, we don't pay enough attention to our history and how it defines different countries. And also, we've seen re- attempts here to really to rewrite, say, Australian history, and uh, it's being written more accurately now with respect to the various uh, massacres and so forth. But we saw in John Howard's time, particularly, an attempt to rewrite Australian history with a different narrative, and uh, it wasn't a narrative that I found comfortable. You received the Nobel Prize in 1996 for your work in explaining how the immune system recognises cells infected by viruses. Uh, I assume that that work has been crucial for our understanding of viruses and the development of vaccines today. Could you just expand on what you and Rolf Sinkenagel were working on and why it was so significant? My interest from the beginning has been uh, in how diseases, infectious diseases work. It's a field called pathogenesis. 
So right at the beginning of my career, the first research, I, significant research I published, well, one of the first papers I published was actually with the coronavirus, though we didn't know it was one then. It was a virus called infectious bronchitis virus of chickens. But that wasn't what I started on. It was a bacterial disease called leptospirosis. But I, I, though a lot of interest is in the epidemiology, how the virus is spread and public health and all that, my, my interest is really in what happens in the, in the, in the vertebrate uh, species, the, the domestic animal initially in my career and latterly mainly mice because that's the model for medical research. But more recently... Uh, because of technological advances, we've been able to do a lot more in humans too. So that's been fascinating. So it's how the diseases work. And that's what started me off. And I became very interested in infection and immunity and pathology, the nature of disease process. So my, um, my PhD, for instance, in Edinburgh, which I did while I was working full time for the British government, was uh, in pathology and uh, those sorts of techniques. And then I wanted to learn, uh, coming back from Edinburgh, I wanted to learn about uh, much more about T-cell-mediated immunity, which was a very new field. We'd known about antibodies for a long time, but T-cell-mediated immunity was very poorly worked out. So I went to the national... I was supposed to come back to work in CSIRO in Melbourne, and I would have ended up at that big lab in Geelong, the high-security lab probably retired from there long ago as director. But um, instead, I, when, we were at the, when I was at the National University, I didn't talk, talk to the people in CSRO who were going to give me a job, which would have been a very senior job, and uh, said, can I take a couple of years off and, uh, and learn about these T-cells? And things were more relaxed then in the job market. They said, fine. So I went to the National University, and that's where Rolf Zinkenagel and I made the big discovery about how uh, killer T-cells work and um, that came out of the fact I was working on the nature of the disease process, pathogenesis, the immune pathogenesis with a virus called lymphocytic meningitis virus. I don't know whether you picked up on it, but there's a mouse plague at the moment. And some people are catching lymphocytic meningitis from the mice, which is a, um, can be a very nasty infection in humans. But we discovered basically that by chance we discovered uh, using new techniques for the time that the killer T-cells that knock off virus-infected cells aren't recognising the virus. They're recognising a change in the cell because viruses have to grow within cells. They need cells to, to reproduce. They use our genetic machinery to reproduce themselves, unlike bacteria, which are cells in their own right and reproduce themselves and can grow in water and stuff in all sorts of places, depending on what they need. But all viruses have to grow in cells. So a human virus infection, by definition, the virus is always invading our cells, taking them over and turning them into production factories. And you have to get rid of those production factories to cure the infection. And what we discovered is that the T cell, the killer cell, which does that job, it's an assassin, knocks off the virus-infected cells, does so by recognising virus-induced change of the transplant molecules on our surface. These are the molecules that are recognised in graft rejection when you graft a kidney from one person to another, but their basic role within us is to serve as signalling systems when a little bit of the virus binds to them 
and they come to the cell surface and show that the cell has changed. Now, that whole story, now we started it, but it took another 10 years to really work it out. And other people really worked out a lot of it using different technologies from the one we used. But we proposed back in 1974 when we discovered this that the killer T cell was recognising altered self self being the transplant molecules, and that's the way T-cells work. So we were kind of explaining how the, all the T-cell system works, which is a complex system, and, uh, and it, uh, we made some guesses, wrote a hypothesis. So we both made a discovery and made a theory, and uh, it turned out to be right. It was a lot of good guesses in it. Experiments couldn't actually be done when we made the discovery because the technologies weren't there. They came on board over the next 10 years. And it was sorted out by about 1985. Uh, we, our discovery was 1974, and we got the Nobel Prize in 1996. Does it usually take that long to...? Quite commonly, yes. The Nobel Prize to uh, the people that discovered the telomerase uh, phenomenon, which is, of course, an Australian and, and uh, a couple of Americans, that took the same time. So it's quite common. Uh, sometimes it's shorter if it's a very straightforward, very molecular story, but often it does take 20 years. It can take 50-plus years, and uh, that has, has happened, yeah. What was that whole process like, getting the Nobel Prize? Well, it's kind of an extraordinary experience. It's not something I'd ever seriously thought about, actually, even though we knew we'd made a really major discovery and we'd switched really half of immunology down another road. We didn't do all of it. We made the initial discovery, but others helped work it out. And then there was another Nobel Prize for the transplantation system in 1980. So I thought, oh, well, that probably rules us out. Because one of the Nobel guys who got the Nobel took credit for a lot of our work in his Nobel lecture, really in a kind of unscrupulous way, but that's who he was. And, you know, we sort of knew each other and, and spoke okay. But um, so I thought, well, that's the end of that. I don't have to worry about that one. And then we started to win other prizes. And in 1995, we won the Lasker. And I was hearing rumours we were nominated for the Nobel. Nobody's supposed to tell you, but I was hearing these rumours and I thought, oh, well, that's not likely. And we won the Lasker Basic Science Award, which is half the people who win a Nobel Prize win that. And these, some of these prizes, particularly that Lasker one and the Canadian Gerdon one, try and predict the Nobel Prize winners because that gives them status. For the Golden Globes to the Oscars. Exactly, exactly. The same phenomenon. And, uh, and we won both of those. So the next year we got the call about the Nobel and it's always in the first Monday in October. And so it really uh, came, came as a bit of a surprise, and, uh, uh, but uh, we knew it wasn't fake. We were living in Memphis, Tennessee at that stage. Uh, I was at a place called St Jude Children's Research Hospital, which is a wonderful research institute in a very unlikely town for that sort of activity, uh, but still a fantastic place. And uh, we got the call at four in the morning and my wife picked up the phone and we thought it was a sick relative in Australia or something. I wasn't conscious of any of the procedures they went on around the Nobel and uh, the guy said, uh, this is Nils Ring, it's from the Nobel Foundation. And she gave me the phone and said, it's for you. That must have been amazing just to have you recognised as reaching the top of your profession like that. Well, it's, you know, you don't do science for prizes. You do science, in my case, you do it because, well, you found something you can do quite well. Mm-hmm. I think we all like to find something we can do quite well. And, um, and also... It, 
um, it, it fitted my personality. I'm curious. I want to know how things work. And so I'm the sort of scientist that takes things apart and finds how, how they work rather than works out solutions. You know, there's a lot of diversity in science and personalities and in technologies and all the rest of it. But, uh, but its role is really to, to, to identify problems, to work out how, how things function. And then if there's a problem you can fix to try and fix it. That's what scientists do. Does your background as a veterinarian give you a more thorough understanding of uh, zoonotic mutations by viruses than most virologists would have? No, the virologists are really the people that don't understand this. But, um, but my background as a veterinarian taught me, because veterinary science in Queensland at that stage, Queensland's primary industries, agriculture, were the animal industries, um, the cattle and sheep industry were enormous in Queensland, mining wasn't nearly as big as it became. And, uh, and so uh, the whole point of the veterinary training, there wasn't so much clinical veterinary medicine, the type of city practitioners and stuff, but those, those people all trained through those, that course and registered them as veterinarians, but it was based on, on the animal industries. So we, um, so medical training's different. I mean, medical training is about trying to uh, really, it's trying to, well, it's human health, but preventive medicine has never been at the front of medicine, even though they make recommendations. Most medical doctors treat people for conditions or try to prevent conditions getting worse. So, so medical doctors do everything from paediatrics to geriatrics. Well, in an animal production-oriented veterinary course, there wasn't a lot of geriatrics right. for a start. And, uh, and we learnt subjects like genetics which the medical doctors really didn't learn genetics. And uh, they do now, but they didn't then. And uh, we also learned a lot of pathology and a lot of infectious disease because these were the things that, uh, that we were required to kind of sort out when you had a problem in the animal industries. I mean, there were other people who were interested in animal production, food and feeding and all that sort of stuff and nutrition, uh, though we learnt that sort of stuff. But so we had a much better in-depth training than a lot of the docs in, in some areas, but we're, we're very untrained in others. It was almost being a veterinarian uh, allowed you to have the inclination towards uh, subjects like virology and genetics more than it would have if you were just a physician. Yes, I mean, you do have people in medicine, of course, who are very oriented towards that, and something like COVID really brings those to the fore. But these are people, I mean, they do, they do their medical training and then they do a, a physician training with an infectious disease subspecialty. So these are the people I work with a lot at the moment at our institute, a lot of our, our director and a lot of the key people are infectious disease-trained medical doctors, uh, but a lot of the, the lab leaders are actually PhD scientists. Uh, um, I think I'm the only vet in the place at the moment, but my veterinary training is pretty remote. What is the current situation with the AstraZeneca vaccine? I know some people are concerned about blood clots but from what i've heard uh, from some scientists is that the amount of blood clots that we're seeing are the same amount that occur regardless of a vaccine rollout is that correct i it's hard to pick it apart at the moment i noticed the um uh, it's basically this concern has come initially out of scandinavia uh i think norway pulled the plug first these these countries have done this before with vaccines um the, the hepatitis vaccine, which everybody uses, they did the same with that. 
and also I think a pneumococcus vaccine. So they've got a hair trigger uh, on possible side effects. Um, and then a number of other countries stopped using the vaccine. Most of them, the European countries, most of them have come back to using it. Italy was the first, and I think also Germany and now maybe France also. And, um, and the European's Medicines Agency, which is a registering body, which is really looks at this. I mean, they, they approve vaccines. But when a vaccine is approved, it's approved after being tested in and it may be approved in a, in a sort of emergency use, which is the way the current set of vaccines have been approved because they've been approved fairly quickly, though with a very, the usual rigorous process and all the checks and balances and people being very careful. Um, but you've tested them by that stage in 20 or 30,000 people. Uh, things can happen after you get up to above 3 million. And the AstraZeneca vaccine has now gone into millions of people, I think, as have the mRNA vaccines in the States, the Moderna and the Pfizer. And uh, the British haven't seen the problem. The Scandinavians picked up on this. So the problem is always when you're vaccinating en masse, is, is the vaccination and a problem that arises, is there a cause and effect relationship or is this just random chance? Now, blood clots are really pretty common for one reason or another. For instance, we put ourselves at reasonably high risk, actually, when we get on a long-distance flight. And I'm, I'm taking baby aspirin anyway for the reason most older males are taking it. But So that's one of the things you do. If you're going on a long-distance flight, all of us actually, one of my young colleagues got caught with this uh, because of deep vein thrombosis because he had a genetic predisposition. But if we're getting on one of those really long-distance flights, it's a pretty good idea for all of us, actually, to take a bit of aspirin and put on those compression stockings. Well, I'd never even heard about that as a... Oh, yeah. No, it's a, it's a good plan uh, because you know, the guy that uh, really could have had a very, very severe problem with it and even died was in his early 30s. And uh, so... Um, so you need, you know, you need to sort of keep the, the legs compressed so they don't swell up too much, and you, which reduces the, the danger of clotting, and uh, take something like aspirin, which reduces the level of clotting. Mm. So, um, so I guess it's been looked at, um, and clearly the European Medicines Agency has uh, not come up with uh, the evidence that says, well, there is a significant risk from the vaccine. But in, anyway, even if there was, there's still this issue of vaccination in the face of a pandemic is all about relative risk. Now, we're not in the relative risk situation at the moment because we don't have active infection. But in, Germany, in Europe, they're having a third wave. And so basically, I mean, what is the relative risk of being vaccinated versus the relative risk of, uh, of, of the infection? And the relative risk of infection is pretty high. And the consequences are bad. They're, they're, it's not generally recognised by, by a lot of people, but we, we concentrate on the people who die. And a number of people have died, of course. And more, more Americans have died than died in all their wars of the 20th century, for instance. But there's also a pretty high risk of um, a long-term debility. We don't know how long-term these people are called long haulers or long covid but uh, it, that affects all age groups, including children. And uh, one, one figure I saw recently is up to 10% of children 
who have it, have this long COVID phenomenon for quite a while. Long-term problems beyond the initial illness. Yes, it's, it's what um, many in the past have referred to as chronic fatigue syndrome. And now, of course, and the problem with chronic fatigue syndrome is nobody could ever find what triggered it. And they couldn't um, see much in the type of medical tests that people normally do. There wasn't a lot of evidence of heart damage or lung damage. Now, in COVID, you can have severe heart and lung damage, and that will cause chronic debility. But a lot of the people who developed this long COVID had initially asymptomatic or very mild infections. And so, um, and so but now, uh, because of the, the way we're testing, we've never tested for a virus like this before on such a large, large scale. We know that there's a virus trigger. And again, a lot of these people who've got this long debility, there's not necessarily any obvious medical reason for it. So it's caused a whole rethinking of this chronic fatigue area and will hopefully open out a lot of good research on it. So asymptomatic uh, people who, who contract COVID uh, also are at risk of these long-term Yes, issues. absolutely. Um, quite a number of people who are asymptomatic or have very mild clinical infections are getting this long COVID. So it's almost as though as you, if you're elderly, you, you, you'll quite possibly die. If you're younger, uh, there's quite a good possibility you will develop uh, some level of long-term debility. It may be only one or two symptoms or it may be a whole spectrum of symptoms. And some people really uh, are really kind of dysfunctional as a consequence. And in some ways it's almost riskier because if you are asymptomatic, you're not going to be aware that those effects will be taking place on you. Yes, and we wouldn't have known about it except for the testing regimes. We wouldn't have known you had an asymptomatic infection. Hmm. Yeah. Back to what we were saying with uh, the issue with AstraZeneca and I just think especially given the scale of the rollout it seems to me that there's going to be many things such as these blood clots which will be misconstrued by the public. Has it been stressful trying to manage the optics around the vaccine rollout? Well I haven't been really involved in that. It's um, I've actually deliberately stayed away from the public health aspect for two reasons. It's not my expertise even even though I did write a book on pandemics uh, some years back. Uh, but, um, but the other reason is we're part of the public health response, the Institute. We, are the, we have Vidral, which is the state diagnostic lab for viruses, and our, our, the people who looked after Royal Melbourne Hospital when we had that second wave was the main focus uh, of infection. Uh, our, our people, uh, joint appointments with the Institute. The Institute's also part of Royal Melbourne Hospital. It's not just the University of Melbourne. So basically they're part of that response. Our epidemiologists are advising the federal government. They're advising the state government. So I, I, we can't really comment very openly on issues to do with rollout, uh, why the vaccine thing has been, been a bit delayed. I, I think that's largely due to supply uh, or the organisation of that. We stay away from it uh, because we've got to work with these guys and, uh, and their colleagues. And so, um, so I think that uh, um, you will always, uh, with a vaccine, get this problem. And, uh, and part of the anti-vaccination uh, movement is related to that. You know, part of it's comprised of, of uh, parents who had or know of a bad experience with a vaccine in a little kid. You know, when vaccines uh, are given, to some extent, they replicate what happens in an immune response. So there's a lot of things that go on right at the beginning in an immune response where you get 
what we call the innate immune molecules made, which give you fever and, and make you feel off for a bit. And so you take a perfectly healthy kid in to be, uh, to be um, vaccinated and they're whiny and whingy for a couple of days. And sometimes things do happen. And sometimes things happen that are totally unrelated. For instance, a lot of young kids commonly have fits. It's not uncommon for small children to have fits. But if they have a fit just after they're given a vaccine shot, you know, you imagine what effect that has on the parent. Um, in fact, one of my colleagues who's prominent in this area describes how his wife, a paediatrician, was filling the syringe about to give a kid a vaccine and the kid had a fit. So if it had been five minutes later, the fit would have been blamed on the vaccine. So there's always this problem of false correlation. And, you know, with a vaccine, you'd expect anything that develops to develop pretty quickly. But people will say months later, they'll blame it on a vaccine months earlier. So, so we have that issue. Then you've got uh, in the va- anti-vaccination thing at the moment, you've got also a, 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 a joining together with people saying, well, it's limiting our freedoms to require that we be jabbed with a vaccine or that we be locked down. And our freedom is more important than anything else. Well, basically, that's okay. But if they get sick because they're not vaccinated, the doctors don't have that freedom. The doctors and the nurses will treat them because they treat them because of duty of care, because that's their profession. And you're not going to tell me that someone who's sick with COVID who's an anti-vaxxer is not going to seek hospital attention if they're dying and they can't breathe. That's an interesting way of looking at it. So basically they're, they're putting their freedom ahead of the rights and freedoms of the rest of society. Because if people are not vaccinated, it's going to make it. The more people who are not vaccinated, the harder it is for us to open up fully. Just to play devil's advocate there, though, wouldn't the GP be vaccinated uh, when he's treating the... Uh, the anti-vaxxer who's... Yes, I'm not saying it would necessarily threaten the doctor, but it threatens other people in the community and they are required to treat them. There's one instance where it could be a problem. If, if you know someone's vaccinated and they come in with COVID and it's severe, the first thing you would think about is are they infected with another variant, an escape variant? So it could be that that would confuse that issue because the, the doctors could be at risk of that. The, the vaccines are, are, are highly effective at preventing severe disease. We don't know how effective they are yet at preventing the long COVID. I think they will stop it personally because of my idea about how the thing's working, but we don't know that yet. And, uh, and we also don't know that they will totally prevent transmission because it's, it's quite possible, I think, that someone vaccinated will still get a bit of virus multiplying up here. At the top of the nose, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah up around here. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to keep immunity at high levels up there. But I think it will stop the bloodborne phase of the infection, which is, I think, what's doing the most damage with COVID. We don't have that in influenza. Influenza doesn't get around the body and the blood. It's purely a respiratory infection. Whether it's justified or not, uh, do you feel that there's a growing distrust between the public and the scientific community? And how do you think that can be uh, rectified, if, if so? I, I think that that was happening uh, very much so. Um, and I think that's really gone back quite a bit because I think the community on the whole is pretty much trusting the medical profession. They realise that you actually need people who know what they're talking about and are competent to do something. I mean, truly, it's remarkable. We've got a vaccine out there that's very, very effective as any vaccine I've ever seen. 
in um, 90% efficacy for vaccines, and both the AstraZeneca and the Pfizer biotech are coming across as being up in that range from the actual performance in Britain. There is good data out of Bristol, out of uh, Scottish Public Health Service and England's, North of England, I think it is, Public Health Service, that says both vaccines are, are performing at about the same level and they're preventing the great majority of severe disease. That doesn't mean they're preventing all illness. They're preventing the great majority of severe disease. So have they uh, reevaluated the efficacy of the AstraZeneca vaccine? Because I remember that it was at 65% as opposed the, to if The AstraZeneca results were very confusing. I mean, the Pfizer biotech results came in as 90%, and we were just over the moon. Nobody expected 90%. The FDA, the American Registering Agency, was prepared to accept uh, 50% efficacy. Now, they were basing that on influenza. In fact, if you've been looking at the setting it straight pieces, I've been writing for our website, and they're now up to number 50 this week. Uh, you'll see that the, for the last three or four weeks, I've been comparing influenza vaccines and COVID vaccines, and I'm just about to write the bottom line story this week. So uh, if you're interested, in it, that's one way to look at it. It's up to number 50. And so... Um, but uh, nobody expected that level of efficacy. Then the AstraZeneca results, when they were reported, were really confusing. They had used a couple of different dosing regimes in different places, and they came through as being between 60 and 90%. So they were averaging that out around 70%. So everyone thought, oh, well, this vaccine is not as good. But it, it's quite possible that if you wait three months between the first and the second shot, that the AstraZeneca vaccine is just as good. I think they, I think the Pfizer one, they they give the second shot a bit too soon, and with the AstraZeneca, they we are now following the protocol of waiting three months, and I think that's the right thing to do. You could probably make it two months or even six weeks, but three months is fine. And um, and and but apart from that, what's really surprising is that the British results we're showing a high level of protection with one shot with each vaccine. And there's a lot of work going on at the moment, particularly in the UK, of doing mix and match, you know, prime with one vaccine, boost with another. I think that's a really good idea, but we need to have the, the uh, data in from clinical trials before we go ahead with that. What's the planned timeline at the moment for Australian citizens to receive the vaccine? What age groups are getting the vaccine and when? Well, now it's one. We're down to one B. So that's my age group, the 70 plus. And I think Indigenous people who are older, 50, over 55, because they're always at greater risk of these things. Anyone with underlying medical conditions, which would put them at greater risk, is given priority. Um, phase 1A was the frontline healthcare workers, the quarantine hotel workers, the uh, people working on immigration, all that sort of stuff. So they've been vaccinated already with the Pfizer vaccine. The AstraZeneca uh, is being rolled out um, and now. I'm getting it on Friday. And, um, and I'm quite happy to be getting the AstraZeneca vaccine. And uh, um, Sonia Pemberton, who's um, made the, um, the documentary Jabbed, did you see that? No, I haven't it's seen it. It's a wonderful documentary on vaccination, which viewed both on SBS here and on, uh, on PBS in the US. If it's on YouTube, you should try and look at it. I'll, Jabbed. I'll check it out for sure. Sonia Pemberton. She's doing one on COVID, uh, focusing it around our institute, and she wants to get me pictured being jabbed. So, <laughs> Photo op. Yeah. Uh, for someone who's 
probably more aware of the ins and outs of viruses and vaccines and most must be uh, feel like a big weight off your shoulders to be getting the, the vaccine. This way. Absolutely, yes. I, I think, uh, you know, the probability of being infected in Australia at the moment is very low, but, it, uh, but we have had all these repeated lockdowns. Uh, I was much more frightened of the virus or much more thinking that I'm likely to be caught with this early on than I think we, our governments did a really good job and... Uh, uh, ensuring we weren't at great risk. I'd give a lot of credit to the state premiers. I think uh, there were mistakes made in Victoria at the outset, but the Victorian government uh, really adapted very fast in their public health response. I, I give Dan Andrews a lot of credit, though a lot of people are really angry with him. I think that's unfair because if uh, Victoria hadn't shut it down, we would never have got to the position we're in now in the rest of Australia. Mm. In what what is the difference between uh, the Pfizer mRNA vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine in the way that uh, our immune system reacts to it or the, the way we process it? Um, as far as the immune system goes, there's no real difference. I mean, what happens is what you're giving is mRNA, messenger RNA. You know, you've got viral genetic material. All viruses are is a package of genetic information with some protein and fat and stuff around them to protect them when they're outside the cell so, and to get them into the cell. So um, the, the COVID virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, is an RNA virus. It's what we call a positive strand RNA virus. Now, it copies from the, the, the uh, positive strand, it copies a... Uh, uh, a negative strand which then copies both more RNA to make new virus particles. So it's a, it, you know, it's like a, like a, um, uh, a jigsaw puzzle fitting into each other sort of thing. And it also makes mRNA. mRNA is messenger RNA. Me- mRNA is read out by the, in various bits. It's what we call transcription uh, uh, and uh, and translation and transcriptions, the copying and translating, uh, and translating is the copying and transcribes to make protein. So, so the, the, the antibodies are against the protein. So the protein is made by instruction from the mRNA. So that's the Pfizer vaccine. They, they actually make the mRNA and they are injecting a mass of that. Okay, and the Moderna vaccine is the same and there's another one called uh, Curex, I think it is, something like that. Uh, which is not out yet, but it'll be around soon. And, and, and each one of those represents an advance in technology, actually, which is really interesting. This is moving incredibly fast. So the, the AstraZeneca vaccine is what we call a virus-vectored vaccine. What they've done is taken a, one of the common cold viruses, in this case a common cold virus of, of chimps, and it's, it's called an adenovirus. And these are viruses where the genetic information is actually DNA. So what they do with that adenovirus is they disable it so that it can't multiply itself. And what they have to do to get produce the virus is to grow it in what they call a, uh, a, a, in a cell line that has the other bits of virus in the cell line that enables the virus to replicate, but they're not in the virus. Right. So, pa- it's called a packaging cell line. That's where there was all this fuss about the aborted fetus. What was the fuss about the aborted fetus? Well, there was all this fuss that the packaging cell line, Mm. which is one called WI38, Wistar Institute 38, it's been around since 1975, was actually derived from an aborted fetus. 
Most of us who've worked with WI-38 cells over the decades had no idea of this. Right. And but, was that, I think I did see something about that. Was the, the, the uh, Catholic Church was uh, getting vocal no, about the, that? No, it was the Anglicans in oh, the Sydney Anglican. who got upset yeah. because they're very fundamentalist. Uh, but the Catholic, the Pope has said it's okay. You can take the vaccine. So the Pope's given it its blessing, okay. Yeah. So, so basically what they do then is they've chopped out a bit of the DNA from the adenovirus and put it in the cell line so it can multiply, but it's not in the virus that's produced. And what they've done is then made DNA from the COVID 2 spike protein DNA. It's, you know, all these vaccines are just against one protein of, of the COVID 2 uh, the spike protein. And they popped that into, they made DNA from that using what we call reverse transcriptase. They popped DNA into the adenovirus, so it's now carrying that bit of COVID 2 So the adenovirus infects the cell when it's given as a vaccine, this, this vaccine virus, and it, um, it, the, DNA, it, the DNA goes into the nucleus. It then makes the mRNA, which goes out into the cytoplasm, and the mRNA makes the spike protein. So in both cases, what you've got is mRNA making spike protein. It's just a difference in the way you deliver it. Okay. And the DNA that goes into the nucleus doesn't get copied back into the genetic material of the cell. That only ever happens with a virus like HIV, where you have what's called a reverse transcriptase, which actually does that. We call them retroviruses because they copy back, retro back. So that won't happen. And, and so both of them are mRNA in the cytoplasm making protein and it's the protein that, that stimulates the immune response. The science is extraordinary. It's almost like they're just great works of art almost, vaccines and viruses themselves in a more morbid way, but they're just so... Well, you know, they're the, the classic, classic description of evolution. I mean, with influenza viruses, we're seeing evolution at work all the time. Now, unlike... Unlike the COVID virus, influenza viruses and HIV throw off mutants at a very, very high rate. Very, very high rate. With COVID, we get mutants, as we've been hearing, but at a very, very low rate, in fact. But they are common enough for us to be able to barcode the viruses and do this genetic epidemiology, what we call genomic epidemiology, which is a new science which has been founded during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we've been, we were very instrumental in getting that, that, a lot of that going. Ben Howden in our institute has been very instrumental in getting it going. So that's, that's how uh, the, the epidemiologists and the public health people can say, oh, this virus came from the UK or it came from South Africa or it very likely came from these individuals. Though we don't tend to publish that, we don't want to demonise people because that's not their fault to the carrying the damn virus it's interesting just how sort of throughout history crises sort of instigate technological innovation you know i mean you look at world war ii is the, the race for the nuclear bomb and uh, you know yes yes so the the advances the big advances in influenza vaccines uh, up till this up till the stage we were with covid really occurred uh, during the bird flu scare in 2005 when George W. Bush put a hell of a lot of money in uh, to, uh, to research, probably at the instigation of Tony Fauci, who we've all seen on the, uh, on the TV with COVID, and uh, who was in the same job he is in now at that time. So, so um, and what they did is, is all the influenza vaccines at that stage were still being made in embryonated hen's eggs. 
a very, very strange and primitive technology, but it just made a lot of virus. And, and actually, the, most of the Australian vaccine is still made in that way, the flu vaccine. But um, they got a lot of the viruses across into tissue culture systems, which was a big advance, which means we could get away from the hen's eggs. But now we're going to mRNA, and basically all you need to do uh, to make an mRNA vaccine is know the gene sequence. You don't have to grow the virus. You don't have to grow it up. You just make the mRNA. So that'll most likely be the future of uh, vaccines. Really. It'll very likely be the future of flu vaccines, and people are working very aggressively. And also there's a, a lot of a push, uh, both coming from government and from from outside government to actually develop an mRNA vaccine production uh, industry in this country. So in this, the sort of latter part of your career, your focus has turned more toward uh, the public communication of science and the defence of an evidence-based view of the world. Is that correct? Yes, yes. The, the, the 1996 with the Nobel Prize, up to that stage, I'd, I'd had a little bit of sort of public communication, but very, very little really. I mean, you know, scientists are really famous within their communities and I was a very well-known scientist within the immunology community and, um, but they're, they're totally unknown outside. I've always had this experience of uh, it's, it's sociologically it's always seemed to be fascinating and if I was clever enough I'd try to write about it. But you go to one of these scientific meetings. There used to be a lot of these meetings held in off-season ski resorts, for instance, and uh, you go to one of these things and you're all in a hotel and everyone's kind of locked up together and you sometimes overlap with the previous meeting because you arrive a day earlier. And if you look down, say, if you can see the bar area, which you often can from these hotels, they often have an open area, you can look down from above, you can kind of spot who's the really important guys that everyone's sucking up to and all and, and, and you think, well... You know, this is a really important guy, but I don't have the faintest clue at who it is. It might be a guy or a woman, you know. I have no idea who they are, mm. <laughs> but they're famous in that field, you see. So it's like, uh, it's like my, my tennis-playing uncle used to say, you know, he played B-grade for Dolby, which is a country town in Queensland. Oh, right. Yeah, so, um, but the Nobel Prize makes you a public figure, and what made me even more a public figure is even though I wasn't, living in Australia under the way they chose the Australian of the Year at that stage, which was really was a little committee set around in Sydney. And uh, my theory is they had a couple of bottles of Grange, but they had to, on government expense, and they had to actually uh, choose someone before they got on with the drinking. They, <laughs> they picked someone, and they always pick someone who won a Nobel Prize, even if they lived in Australia or not. How many Australians have won the Nobel Prize? Uh, depends how you use the definition. Uh, I think it's uh, something like six or seven living in Australia, but more than that if you take people who did their work outside Australia. Right. And um, they so, – so anyway, I got a call saying I was supposed to be Australian of the Year and I said I'd like to put it off for a year and they said you can't do that if you ever want to visit again. So, so I was out here four times. Uh, we were out here four times for extended visits and doing a, just doing public stuff. And that meant, um, uh, you know, radio, TV, uh, talking in town halls and at big, big venues. And so I suddenly found myself in the public communications area fielding, you know, all sorts of questions about homeopathy. And I started to field questions about climate change and I hadn't really been thinking about it. But that got me interested in reading up on that so I could answer the questions reasonably well. And that's how I sort of got involved in trying to communicate the risks of climate change. So all the, most of the book, all the books I've written pretty much have had something about that in them. 
Do you think the biggest gap between evidence and perception um, is with climate change? Well, climate change has been a major feature because, you know, you've had a number of the oil companies, for instance, knowing exactly what's happening, putting out greenwash saying we're doing this and we're doing that, while at the same time putting out uh, actually disinformation. I, I think essentially it's a criminal activity. It's absolutely disgrace. I, did you see, I think yeah. it was Rio Tinto who blew up that. Uh, well, that was a different issue. That was just a major cultural insensitivity, if you like. And but it's that, also, but it's also a you know an obfuscation of the yeah. of, of, of the true meaning of that site to the indigenous people. And, yeah, yeah and no, they, they a, use that as an excuse to blow it up. Absolutely, it was a cultural cultural vandalism of the worst site, worst type. And they knew what they were doing too. But but you know, I'm not against all mining because we need metals, we need lithium, we need all sorts of things. But I think fossil fuels, we have to stop burning them unless we work out something different so i think it's the fossil fuel companies not so much the coal companies because you expect them to be pretty dumb quite frankly and they are but it's the it's the oil companies who are smart you know they're high-tech high-tech operations not the coal people can be high-tech in many aspects too in the way they do their mining and the trucks and all that sort of stuff but they're not they're not in that sort of game to the same extent. And they're not as globalised, I think, as the oil. And the oil companies have really been terrible because they'd say, they were saying one thing while actively lobbying against what needed to be done. But recently that, I think, has changed a lot. And a lot of them realise they have to have a different business model. They have to get out of it. And they've backed off on that a lot. And uh, so things are better. But, you know, our government is, is totally trapped in a political morass and... Mm. Uh, um, you know, where we have what is happening in many countries throughout the world, I think, which are rather, in a sense, I'm not saying people in the rural areas are, are primitive or unthinking or anything else, but the dynamics of, are such that you have a very conservative rural element uh, for one reason or other to controlling the political scene. And that's what we saw with Trump. I mean, mm. Trump... I don't think they, the Republicans ever carry any of the major cities, for instance, in the United States. I was watching David Attenborough's A Life on Our Planet. Have you seen it? I've seen bits of it, yeah. Now, he's a wonderful communicator. Uh, yeah. I, I thought it was, aside from being really inspiring, I thought he did a good job of framing the argument in a way that is more likely to persuade those who are indifferent to the environment because I, yes. think, I think his strongest argument was uh, we're not saving the planet for its own sake but saving it for ourselves and it sort of takes away the exactly. religious fervour of environmentalism and gives it a more practical and pragmatic flavour, I think. Well, the, you know, the religious aspect, there are various... Um toxicities in some of the belief systems, you know, that everything's created to serve us, for instance, and we can do exactly what we want. But, but if you read through those, I mean, I know the Bible reasonably well because I was brought up in, uh, um, not due to my parents so much as a grandparent, in kind of a context of a fundamentalist Methodism. So I read a lot of the Bible when I was a kid and was religious at that stage. And, uh, and basically, uh, there's a lot that says, you know, it's your job to look after the place. Mm. But uh, some in the sort of evangelical communities in the United States have set that aside and they're, they're passionately involved in, in, in um, the Armageddon-type scenarios, which I think is a really dangerous phenomenon, actually. And I think regardless of whether you believe in Christianity or any, any kind of religion, I think a lot of, a lot of the lessons from... Christianity and from the Bible, uh, sort of the, the ones that are perhaps more secular, uh, 
and just universal are lacking in today's culture, something like taking care of the environment and forgiveness, I feel, in, in the public. Well, I mean, uh, the lacking def- as, a, as an idea. Yeah, I mean, as, uh, my, my definition of, of a Christian belief is really based around the Sermon of the Mount. And, um, you know, basically it's a communist manifesto almost. Take what you have and give to the poor sort of thing. That's, that's the Christianity I understand that that you, uh, you, you look after. And that was very much in the Methodist tradition, which was, came from low church Anglicanism and arose as a, um, as a social movement really trying to stop uh, widespread public drunkenness. Hmm. So our beliefs as uh, Methodists were that you, you don't drink and you don't dance. <laughs> I'm not sure about dancing, but, you know, probably led to the licentious activity. So Methodists didn't drink or didn't dance. They weren't joyless or humorless. And, <laughs> and I think a lot of what a lot of people miss about um, things like Hillsong is they're getting a lot of people together in a sort of context like that where they're what, singing these... What's Hillsong? The Hillsong Church. The, I think that's Pentecostalism it is. It's, it's kind of God wants you to be rich Christianity, which to my mind has nothing to do with Christianity. But, mm. but they sing these songs together and you get, they get a great uh, emotional experience. I mean, it's, it's, it goes beyond the experience of the footy crowd, but... But that's what the evangelical thing builds on, really. It's, a, it's community. And particularly in the United States, uh, it's often the big churches who provide the social services. Mm-hmm. So if you're not involved in the church, you don't get them helping you yeah, right. if you get in trouble. Norman Mailer, one of my favourite writers, once wrote, um, we divorce ourselves from the materials of the earth, the rock, the wood, the iron ore. We look to new materials which were cooked in vats, long, complex derivatives of urine, which we called plastic. They had no odour of the living. Their touch was alien to nature. They proliferated like the metastases of cancer cells, which <laughs> yes. I just thought was a great great line. Yes, but, yes. Uh, do you feel a kind of ambivalence toward human innovation in the sense that innovation can be a cancer of the earth when it produces things like plastic, but in, in many ways innovation can also cure the earth? Yes, I think um, in the position we're in at the moment, uh, we must have innovation and technological innovation and we must do it fast. Because the hardest thing to do is to, to, to cause behavioural change. You know, I, I've, um, born in 1940, uh, I, I mean, the population of the world has almost tripled in, in my lifetime. I find it so strange even to think that, like, yeah. I'm sitting with someone who was alive when Hitler was alive. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not that long ago that, no, that, it's those, not, that, it's not. that, that history has happened. Well, I was, I was I've, looking at it. I mean, you know, we only really understood what an infectious disease was in the 19th century, and this is in the second half of the 19th century, Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch and all these people. So, you know, the plague had had decimated human populations. You know, plague came in, it killed a third to the half of a population of a city. Can you imagine that? That's insane. Yeah, I mean, we're we're talking about less than 1% with COVID who Mm. get sick. We're talking about killing the third or a half of a population of a city. Whole villages were wiped out. You can visit villages. We've been on Greek islands where you go up in the hills, there's the remains of a village. It it was abandoned in the 17th century because of plague. And so, um, so it's only in that century we began to understand what infection is. And, And Alexandra Yurtsen, uh, um, who was one of the work for the Pasteur Institute, but was in Hong Kong. The Pasteur Institute had branches all over the place. Discovered what plague, what caused plague, and uh, there was also a, a Japanese scientist, uh, Kisao Subaru, I think it is, and um, and basically uh, my life overlapped with Yurtsen. 
He was still alive in 1940 when I was born. Wow. Yeah, so it's kind of extraordinary to think that. Yeah. Just like even the nuclear bomb wasn't around then. It's like, do you know what I mean? Like, just, no, nuclear so bomb. Much, so much has changed. Yeah, well, that, uh, of so course, quickly. that whole thing uh, happened uh, happened pretty quickly too. In fact, the, the molecular biology, which is what the whole of our revolution in science is about in biomedicine, was really started a lot by nuclear physicists. Oh, was it? I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, they got very turned off uh, by the Manhattan, being in the Manhattan Project, contributing to the bomb, and uh, they decided to solve biology with the typical arrogance of physicists who are very bright people. But they did a lot of important stuff early on, and they would go to... Um, to a place called Cold Spring Harbour on Long Island, New York, every year, at uh, and a lot of American academics have nine month salaries, especially back then. So they weren't paid for the vacation period; no. they were paid for nine months, even though they had permanent contracts. And they would go to Cold Spring Harbour and spend the summer months doing these little experiments with viruses that grow in bacteria. Yeah. And the advantage of these experiments is you could be very mathematical about it. And you could also do them overnight. So you could drink beer at night and then read your experiment the next day and drink more beer the next night. Scientist right. So, so that really got the molecular biology going, actually. Have you ever seen that interview with Oppenheimer when he's talking about his emotions when he saw the bomb dropped on Hiroshima? I think I saw a bit of it, yeah. It's like yeah. some of us laughed, some of us cried, and then he recites the part of that Well, you know, I, I, in writing this book about tennis, I really looked at that history of the... Uh, of what happened at the end of World War II. And, and uh, the Americans were predicting if they invaded the Man Island, uh, Man Islands, um, uh, uh, more than a million would die, maybe two million. And less, many less than that died in those two bombings. Uh, and many of the people who would die would be Japanese because they'd been through the experience of Okinawa where very large numbers of Japanese killed themselves. But I've always just wondered why couldn't Truman just march the emperor into the Nevada desert and drop it on no one and say, I'll drop this on Hiroshima if you don't surrender tomorrow. Well, he, he you know, first the emperor was in Japan and there were, there were military elements in Japan mm. that still wanted to continue fighting after the bomb was dropped. You've got Japanese politics through, the, through that decade and through the 20th century was really bizarre. The military were in enormous control. The... Um, um, the Ministers for the Navy and the Army had to be chosen from serving or former military officers. And they could bring down a government any time they wanted by actually refusing to supply a candidate if the minister resigned. That would bring down the government. And the emperor didn't actually have... The emperor had no... The emperor stood completely aside from politics. Mm, He was symbolic. He was symbolic. Mm-hmm. and, and a, a god figure, if you like, and totally symbolic. He had no involvement and had to be very, very careful about involving himself in politics, though I don't think he, that particular emperor was helpful. Mm-hmm. I think he identified with this idea. And the idea was really, it was based in imperialism. The idea, they'd suffered as a result of American and European imperialism. They'd been humiliated a number of times. In the First World War, they fought on the side of the Allies. In fact, when, you know the story, the first HMAS Sydney left an Anzac colony, convoy that was taking to the Middle East. It left an Anzac convoy and went off and sank a German raider called the Emden. She ran ashore on Cocos Island. And that was in World War I. World War I, the first HMAS Sydney, not the one that was sunk uh, in World War II. And uh, basically um, a Japanese 
uh, cruiser then took control of the convoy. So they were escorted to the Middle East by the Japanese. Again, it just shows how quickly history can change. Yes, but, but the whole of World War II is basically about Japanese imperialism. Hmm. They had decided that they were going to knock off the imperialists in, in, in Asia, and, uh, which they effectively did, actually, though they came back for a bit after the war. That was the end of them. And, so the, the, and also it, it became a necessity for them because uh, in the, I think it was the July before they bombed Pearl Harbour, they, the Americans and the British got together to block all oil and rubber supply to them. So they had no oil and uh, that's why they went south for the oil fields and the rubber. But that's uh, and they their calculation was, which was totally wrong, and some of the senior Japanese pointed it out, as to knock out the Americans first because they they their major naval uh, problem in the in the Pacific was the Americans. So they thought if they knocked out the American fleet, the Americans would stay out of it. Mm. And of course, it had exactly the, the opposite, opposite effect. effect. Mm. They didn't understand the psychology at all. And there's like the great line from Churchill saying that bombing of Pearl Harbor was the greatest day in world history because it brought the Americans into the oh, war. Oh, absolutely. And... Well, I think Churchill also, like uh, like Hitler, uh, the war could have gone very differently without Churchill. Uh, not a perfect man in any sense, but without Churchill, uh, they could have easily had appeasement with the Nazis. Mm. He was spearheading the. The, the, aristoc- the British aristocracy in particular, there are elements there that would have signed on with the Nazis very easily. And some of them were in the parliament. And, of course... The Halifax was going to... Lord Halifax, mm. yes. I was, Snake. Uh, <laughs> yes, and, and also um, Edward VII uh, would have been quite happy to come back as a puppet king. Mm. Moving to the origins of COVID, have you found the WHO's investigation problematic at all? I think the WHO were very slow to declare it an epidemic. Uh, they've been very important in coordinating all th- sorts of things, which is what WHO does. WHO is always underfunded, like all international agencies, and it's become progressively underfunded because all, all governments are less keen on funding ag- outside the country. The, there's a big aid deficit in general. But I think they made some strategic mistakes early on by not calling it a pandemic very early. I think part of the dynamic in that was that in 2009, when the H1N1 flu pandemic hit, because it was declared a pandemic because it was a novel virus strain that had come out of nature partly, actually come out of pigs, uh, and uh, it, it, it fulfilled their guidelines for declaring a pandemic which is that it was in more than two WHO regions. So they declared it a pandemic very quickly and then the actual infection that went around the world to most people looked no worse than a normal seasonal influenza. And they got a lot of criticism for that because in the minds of the public, pandemic means a very bad infection that's spreading rapidly across the planet, whereas their definition was about spread, not about severity of disease. So I think that was one of the reasons why they were slow to declare it. And they've been a, had a bit of a tin ear at times on, on the language they use. 
It's also they actually needed some good people in public communication. I think their public communication has been at times poor, but they've been very important in the whole rollout, coordinating committees, coordinating responses and all the rest of it. And they are a very important agency and, and parts of WHO always work very well and one of them is the Global Influenza Networks where you've got six big labs across the nation, across the world, uh, one in Melbourne, uh, coordinating what we put into the influenza vaccines. But, but did you find their recent investigation at the latter end of January, I think, problematic at all? Uh, the, uh, the investigation is the Chinese thing. I, I always thought this was kind of, um, you know, they're at the mercy of the Chinese. Uh, I always thought that, you know, that we made a major political mistake in calling for that inquiry. It's cost us billions of dollars of trade. It's achieved nothing. And it was a really, it was really stupid, quite frankly. And I tried to get people to, by sort of back channels to back off because think- the Chinese were very embarrassed. What happened right at the, and they don't like to be embarrassed. And so what happened right at the beginning is a young Chinese doctor got together with a group of young friends who were seeing this d- disease that looked like the original SARS, and they started to publish it. And, and publicised it on social media. They went rogue, didn't they? And they, they, they went on social media. As far as the and Chinese. China is mm. now a very totalitarian and controlled society, mm. and so uh, which is really unfortunate, I think, but that's the way it is. So, um, and so this guy was actually arrested, and, and, and at the same, they arrested him at the same time the public health authorities in the town were saying, we've got a, we've got a respiratory disease emergency. Mm. So why they arrested the guy, it was just shows the, what happens in totalitarian societies where you have the police and the medical authorities not communicating. And then they put a gag order on all Chinese scientists from actually communicating about it as well. Yes, but then, you know, we were still talking a lot to Chinese scientists and we knew a lot of what was going on. And I do... I think it, what has emerged is, it, you know, it was thought at that stage that it had got, come from bats to pangolins in the, um, in the uh, Wuhan f- seafood market, which actually is also a live animal market. And we were thinking in terms of the original SARS, which was established to have gone from bats to civet cats to a live animal market and then into people. And so if you've seen the movie Contagion... I saw it recently. Yeah. And so... Um, so basically that's what we thought and we thought the pangolin was the link. But that really hasn't held up. Nobody has actually isolated exactly that virus from a pangolin or from bats. They haven't found any, um, they haven't identified the, re- the reservoir host at all, have there's they? A, well, it's almost certainly bats. But there's a whole host of, of these viruses in bats and there's lots more of them too. And, but what I hadn't realised, and I was quite mistaken in this, is that... Um, what the Chinese government had done, and this has come out recently, had set up farms to farm these live animal species. And so they, they had all these animals together in a farming environment and this massively increased the risk. So that's what they're saying is the most likely Well, that's what I think I, I'm thinking is the most likely now because it may have gone through bamboo rats, for instance. They were farming bamboo rats and civet cats and pangolins to use to kill for live human consumption and for use in traditional medicines. Why didn't they disclose that they've been farming these animals before? Well, they may have done it, but I wasn't aware of it. I just recently became aware of it and I haven't tried to check out the history of it. But they've closed all that. They closed them all, all down, which is good because I think it's decreased the risk factor. But I don't think the people in China 
at Wuhan or or anywhere else were being dis- duplicitous about talking about which viruses they had in the labs, which viruses they knew about, because these were the best people on it. But perhaps they were acting under duress. Uh, I don't know that. Mm. But, um, uh, but I, don't think, um, I don't think there was any lab escape or anything. Well, why would you let a virus loose in your own... Not deliberately at all, but do you, think, I don't, do you think there's a chance of a lab accident? Well, you, you, you wouldn't know. If the virus had been isolated and it had been in the lab and it just got out, you wouldn't actually know. But the Chinese have no... Uh, are saying, we don't think this happened. We don't have any evidence this happened. Quite frankly, I believe them. I know the people who are involved. And I think they were quite straightforward about that. I don't think, there was, I don't think any of the people on the committee had the sense that anyone wasn't being truthful with them. Why wouldn't they have just allowed a more transparent investigation in the first place? Why would they, why would they have well, had I to? Well, I think if they'd been left alone, they might have done it. But what, what our Prime Minister did, they're embarrassed about what they'd done with this young guy who subsequently died. And what, what they then goes is poke a stick in their eye and say, you know, you're a, you're a bad bunch mm. and, uh, or imply that. And he does that because Trump does that. And Trump does that to, to, as basically an excuse to hide his own incompetence. So we needn't have done that. We gain nothing from it. We gain nothing with the current administration for it, and it cost us a lot of money. But wouldn't you say Scott Morrison, regardless of whether it was politically expedient, at least had the right to call for an investigation into it? Because yes, but why did he? Well, I mean, why why put yourself in the front line where the machine guns are unless you need to do it? We haven't done that since the First World War. Mm. I mean, you know what you expect of politicians is to be politic, mm. and this wasn't politic. It was just stupid. I'm personally a bit more sceptical of the transparency of uh, and the veracity of what the Chinese authorities were saying for reasons that we were just no, talking about Nobody before. has come up with the virus that's in humans from any other source. And our people have been working with these people for a very long time. You know, the, the scientific community works across these things all the time. I don't think anyone in the scientific community thinks, well, certainly it doesn't look like an engineered virus. It wasn't changed in some way. But what about the open letter that was sent to the WHO by the 26 scientists about uh, two or three weeks ago calling, calling for it? I don't know about that. I haven't, I haven't really, really been, been terribly involved in it, but you're not going to get any more information out of China than no. you've already got. No. And we certainly need to keep looking for it, and the Chinese will keep looking for it. Everyone will keep looking for it mm. because they're constantly monitoring these bat-borne viruses. Look, I'm not, you know, I think China, the concerns about China are what it's doing in Hong Kong, what it's doing with these offshore islands, this, this imperialist uh, push uh, and, the, uh, and so forth, and the push particularly towards economic imperialism. But on the other hand, I think uh, the interactions between Australian scientists and Chinese scientists have been fine, and they still are, actually. And what we were doing is that we're kind of trying to embarrass China at a time when a lot of the supplies we need are actually coming from China. Mm. So it, it made no sense at all. I, mean, I think you, you've got to expect of politicians that if they're going out there on that sort of limb, there has to be some advantage for them. Mm. And there was no obvious advantage. It's just posturing. It was posturing. Mm. It was posturing and it was posturing to make Trump happy as far as I'm concerned. And I think it was really foolish. The open letter, it was, it's even been uh, signed and was in fact written by Jamie Metzl, who's on the WHO Advisory Committee. They're arguing that, uh, I I can even read from it, they say, in particular, we wish to raise public awareness of the fact 
that half of the joint team convened under that process is made up of Chinese citizens whose scientific independence may be limited and that international members of the joint team had to rely on information uh, that Chinese authorities chose to share with them and that any joint team report must be approved by both the Chinese uh, and international members of the joint team. The letter goes on for several pages and, as I said, was signed by 26 highly regarded scientists. Um, But it just seems, I don't know, I mean... The most important thing, surely, is to find out how this virus originated so that we can prevent it well, I think, in the future. I think we know pretty much how it originated. I mean, we, we, we don't know the details, but we, we've seen a virus come across from bats into camels in the Middle East. We saw a virus come across from bats into civet cats in the original SARS. Everyone acknowledges that. We know what happened here, I think. It's a virus that's gone from bats to another species that's in close contact with humans. Now, it may have gone straight from bats to humans. That's possible too. But, uh, but it's more likely it's gone through a multiplier species because that's, the, that's what we see with all these viruses, including the Hennepa viruses. Mm. These aren't related, but we've Hendra virus and Nipah virus. Uh, with Hendra virus, it goes from bats to horses to us. And with Nipah virus, it goes from bats to pigs to us. We think with Ebola virus, another virus, phyloviruses in Africa, we think it goes from bats to rodents to us. And so the, there are these transmission cycles. So while it would be very nice to know where this virus originally came from and how exactly it transitioned, it's pretty likely it came out somewhere in Asia, likely in China, likely into, into domestic animals and quite possibly either through these live animal farms or through something like live animal markets. And so the public health measures there are all obvious. You don't have these live wild animal farms and you monitor your public, uh, your, your live animal markets if you must have them. It'd be better if you didn't have them, but you monitor them. And the other thing you do as soon as you get an outbreak like this, and this is what a lot of people don't want to hear, you stop all international passenger air travel from that country immediately. It's probably the one thing Trump did right, I think. In, yeah, in well, he, he did it rather late, actually. By the time he stopped it, the virus was coming in from California. We, we did it right. And that's one thing our Prime Minister does deserve credit for and our politicians do deserve credit for. We shut that down right. They do deserve real credit for that. And, and basically, um, apart from that, it really doesn't help us to know. We know what the basic principles are. And, and, and what, what worries me about this is what human beings have for millennia done with anything like this is try and find someone who's to blame. And blame games are totally useless. But couldn't you say that you wouldn't be putting blame on an individual here but on gain-of-function experiments in general if it wasn't... It's not gain-of-function. There's been no gain-of-function element to it. There was gain-of-function experiments where you manipulate a virus for a particular reason and basically the sort of of gain-of-function experiments that worried people back in the influenza era were basically aimed at trying to understand what was going on so we could better counter it. And so they were being done by highly professional people in top labs. And but the, but and wasn't, wasn't the Wuhan Institute of Virology conducting gain-of-function experiments, though, at their BSL-4 lab? Uh, they, may have, they may have done in the past, but I don't know if they were actually doing gain-of-function experiments. With, and, with, and with coronavirus, I wouldn't, have, wouldn't see why they'd been doing it. Well, I think Xi Jinping and Peter Daszak had actually specifically been working on uh, gain-of-function experiments with coronaviruses. Um, There's no evidence, though, that this virus has been engineered in any way, which you would pick up. Uh, wouldn't you just say that if it was a natural zoonosis, the chances of that occurring within 10 miles of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, that must be a, a tiny fraction of a percentage likelihood, surely? 
I really don't know. I mean, you can play that game, but it's, it's no, there's no known link at the moment. And, uh, and we haven't had a situation where any of those gain-of-function ex- viruses have actually got out of labs into the general community, as far as I'm aware. I think there's... Because I was speaking to a, a guest on my podcast last week. He was saying that there's been an average of one laboratory outbreak per year uh, within China alone. I, I don't know that data. Mm. You know, it's not a field that I watch, basically. No. But I don't, I don't think that the, there's any existing evidence that actually... It, it, if it got out of the lab, it looks like an unmodified strain. I mean, if it had been genetically engineered, I think the virologists would, would see that in, in the way that, that the, the virus is from its, just its gene sequence. And all these genes, the viruses are being sequenced. And I really, I, I think as this is trying to, to sort of assign blame doesn't help us mm. with dealing with this pandemic. What, what we need to learn from this pandemic is the steps that need to be taken to prevent a recurrence. But what if that involves banning gain-of-function experiments? If it was... If, if you ban gain-of-function experiments... I mean, you know, what is a gain-of-function experiment? A, um, and could you actually just go into that just for the listeners who aren't... Well, well it's, it's, it's in doing something to the virus which changes its properties in growing in other species. So that you can nuts. preempt it in, in the wild. Yeah, so generally that was done to try and understand how the disease works. You would, you would, there were, there were, the, one, the, the great concern came up with some of the influenza experiments where they modified a virus to make it more infectious for ferrets, which are considered a model for human influenza. And that created an enormous furor because people are worried that if, if you make a virus which is more infectious for ferrets, it would be more infectious for humans. And then we might get what we all feared would happen with the H5N1 bird flu. It would adapt to start, start spreading between humans. Now, that never happened, and as far as, uh, as, far as I'm aware, uh, none of those viruses ever got out in any sense. Uh, but I'm, it's not a field I'm totally up on. It's not something I've taken a lot of interest in. My interest is in how the disease actually works. But what happens if you stop all gain-of-function experiments? Well, in trying to understand how reassortant flu viruses work, you know, we had two influenza viruses in pigs, that suddenly got together. The flu viruses do this because their genetic material is in eight separate bits. And they can, if you happen to get a cell infected with two different viruses, you can get a repackaged virus out. So that is a gain of function. So if you, if you stopped all gain of function experiments, you would stop those experiments which are trying to identify what are the key genes to target in a virus or a virus infection. So you think... So you would actually stop uh, uh, progress in virology research. Also, I mean, what is a gain of function? A gain of function, you make a virus, in a sense, all the, the, um, the vaccines for measles, mumps, rubella are what we call live attenuated viruses. That is, they've gained the function of, of being mild infections rather than severe infections, and we can use them as a vaccine. So you've got to be very careful if you start talking about all gain-of-function experiments. If you want to go through a, uh, the COVID 2 for instance, and mutate the various uh, regions of the spike protein to see, which you can do perfectly readily, uh, to see just by substitution, to see how that changes immune recognition. 
These are all gain-of-function experiments. So do you want to stop people doing those and just waiting for the variants that come out of nature? So you have to be enormously careful with the blanket ban on gain-of-function. The uh, gain-of-function limitations actually held things back for quite a while. The Obama moratorium? Uh, Yeah, yeah. that moratorium, which was really... It was not the lab scientists that raised the alarm about this. It was the epidemiologists who got very upset about it. These are guys who often don't work with viruses. They work with mathematical models. And so um, I I think... uh, uh, you you have to be be reasonable about this, and, and there's no uh, there's no evidence that Cove two is a gain of function mutant of any sort. I mean, it'd be very surprising if you couldn't see the types of effects you might expect uh, with that from the from the the virus sequence stuff. So you think we're in a safer world with gain of function experiments and without them? I think if they're done in high security labs by very competent people, which they always are, it, they have a place in virus research. That, saying that, though, I'm talking from the way things have been done. And this is one of the traps in science always, especially for old scientists like me, is you can look at the world in the way that it, things were done. But if you banned, banned all gain, gain of function experiments, you would uh, stop all, say, attempts to look at, say, how mutational change of a virus protein, if it was in the native virus. You might, you might say, oh, well, you can put in another virus. But then you say, well, the adenovirus, what had happened? You transfer this gene into a virus vector. This has been the basis of a number of the experimental vaccines over the years. Um, basically, you, you put it into a different virus. I mean, there's always the potential for gain of function. Generally, it's loss. But there's always the potential. So would you ban all those experiments? I mean, you would, you would stop a lot of progress in the sense as that I understand it from the history of, of what's happened in this field. Uh, on the other hand, um, if we switch to all mRNAs and so forth, there may be a different story there. Perhaps the problem then isn't with gain-of-function experiments but uh, with the pathologies of an uh, authoritarian the, government the, using them. I think authoritarian governments are always a concern mm-hmm. and uh, I, I don't like authoritarianism in any for- form. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you see strong authoritarian tendencies from right-wing uh, governments as well as left. So, yeah, no, that, um, that, that doesn't appeal to me in any sense. Is it possible to study viruses and preempt them without something like gain-of-function experiments? Like if, if people were to look for an alternative well, to have the same advantages? That's the trouble. Have. If you're, you're modifying the virus in any way to study it, it's potentially gain-of-function. Right. So, so you stop that whole field of research, basically. Mm. You just finish it. Yeah. And, and that would, I think, not be good. Do you think that uh, COVID and the whole pandemic has been a good enough trial run for the world that when we encounter the next pandemic, we'll be better prepared to deal with it? If we're smart, we will be better prepared. But the question is, can humanity be smart? And uh, that, after seeing Trump and so forth and some of the things that have been, been done here in different countries, you really wonder about that. But basically, I think uh, there are a number of lessons to learn. And if we were really clever, we would take the opportunity because what we have here is a single trigger, a virus infection. We've got enormous diagnosis, so we know the extent of the infection. We've seen different strategies implemented in different countries. So economically, sociologically, psychologically, if you like, you could look at all those parameters Uh, from the point of view of social science research, economic research, apart from the infectious disease aspect. 
from the infectious disease aspect, we've now got all these uh, all this information about firstly a totally different and new disease. This, we've never had a disease like this that causes severe respiratory infection and is also systemic. That is that it goes in through the blood. the blood in the body. Flu doesn't do it and none of our other virus infections work that way. Um, measles, for instance, you get a little bit of infection here and then the virus gets around the body in the blood and you get the skin spots and you get it going in the brain and all sorts of places. So it's a systemic infection, but it doesn't cause severe respiratory disease the way this does. So we've got a totally new virus. We know uh, much more in the sense of the frequency and prevalence of infection than we've ever known before. We know the people that have been infected in many cases, and many of those have joined up with long-term trials. And so we have this enormous uh, biomedical uh, um, uh, potential to really uh, pull apart things like chronic fatigue and, and chronic disease. And also, I think there are, you know, there are some straight medical things we could do that, um, that would help damp down the severity of, uh, of a pandemic or the extent of it. One, the one I mentioned is I think we should stop all international air travel out of a country as soon as anything like this. Is, and we need a global agreement to do that. But can we get global agreements to do that? Even though the airline industries have probably lost billions and billions of dollars, would they actually go along with it or would they pressure their government not to do that? And lobby against it. And lobby against it. I mean, we all know uh, there are many, many interests, incidents of industries lobbying against action that would actually benefit them in the long term because it doesn't benefit them in the short term. So we can't leave it up to them. I mean, we have to look at it from outside. My guest last week was uh, Dr. Stephen Quay, and he was he's based in Taiwan, and he was t- Taiwan uh, has had arguably the best uh, response to COVID in the whole world, despite yes, it has, yeah. Yeah, despite its proximity to China. They've only had I think nine deaths uh, from COVID, and that's because they had contact tracing uh, ready to go. So hopefully, uh, if, if when the next yes. pandemic comes, since we've got contact tracing and a lot of other countries do. Well, basically, um, those countries, Taiwan, Japan, Hong Kong, and so forth, they were all primed by the original SARS. Uh, Hong Kong has also had very, very stringent things in place from day one, though they haven't done as well as Taiwan. But, for instance, uh, you've got an enormously dense population in Hong Kong. But Hong Kong, as soon as someone got it, they, they basically quarantined the whole family. And uh, so it was really very, uh, very aggressive right from the beginning. And, um, and basically we've also, through Hong Kong, we picked up our first evidence of reinfection. We, we understand that people can be reinfected. And that's probably true with flu viruses too. But, but what happened was this guy got the disease initially. He was hospitalised in Hong Kong, uh, was sick enough to be noted as having some clinical involvement, but wasn't very sick. And then he got better and he went off to a European thing and came back and at the Hong Kong airport he was tested again. And he's, he's, got, he's infected, he's PCR positive, develops no symptoms, but this is our first instance we have that people can be reinfected. And I think it's, um, it, it happens with a lot of respiratory infections. So, uh, so that's new information. But, but those countries, there are several factors about them. Firstly, you have an Asian population which is very accustomed to wearing masks, um, largely because of the pollution, I think. And, and also because being an Asian population, they tend to be more compliant. 
and uh, and so uh, you've had a pretty good uh, good experience. And things have gone very well in some of the Southeast Asian countries until fairly recently, largely because of that compliance and because they've had good public health uh, strategies in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we learned is uh, some of our public health strategies are good, but uh, they're all state-based and some of them were working much better than others. I mean, it was very clear, apart from Ruby Princess, that the New South Wales public health response, initially, the department was much better organised than the Victorian one uh, because they had their, their people organised into independent units which had much more community contact, whereas the Victorian one with the successive cuts in funding had actually accumulated into one big unit and that didn't work very well. So that's all been changed, fortunately, yeah. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, Peter. It's been an absolute honour to talk to you and thanks for giving me uh, your time. Um, And, yeah, all the best with your uh, jab at the end of the week. Yes, well, we hope it goes well. If I collapse on the end of the syringe, it'll give a lot of ammunition. I'll let the listeners know. (laughs) Yes, Okay. Thanks a lot, Peter. Okay.